completed the record of Jesus' public teaching at the temple. We move now in the Gospel of Luke to the eve of the death of Jesus the Christ. It is the time for the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, the Passover. And Luke explains, the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, that is for his non-Jewish readers, just to clarify what he's talking about. He's patient with them, with us. In, uh, in Exodus, when we first looked at this even just a few months ago for us, we saw that these were actually two separate feasts originally, and then very quickly in biblical history, they become combined together in this one celebration. But this commemorative deliverance from Egypt of Israel was the setting which would hold the, the precious gem of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It is as if all of the Old Testament, all of the Old Covenant were an engagement ring, a beautiful but rugged engagement ring with prongs that are sticking up out of it, naked prongs that in and of themselves aren't very attractive, that can catch on things, that can snag things, an engagement ring waiting for the placement of the gem to come right in it and to fulfill the engagement and the promises thereof. And that is what we have taking place for us in these final chapters of Luke. Hear this portion of the Word of God. I'm going to read from us, uh, for us from chapter 22 down through verse 23, the Word of God. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and conferred with the chief priests and officials how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. Then came the day of unleavened bread on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and prepare the Passover for us that we may eat it. They said to him, where would you have us prepare it? He said to them, behold, when you have entered the city, a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him into the house that he enters and tell the master of the house, the teacher says to you, where is the guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished. Prepare it there. And they went and found it just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when the hour came, he reclined at table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it until it is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he said, Take this and divide it among yourselves. For I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. And he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, This is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise the cup after they had eaten, saying, This cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. But behold, 
the hand of him who betrays me is with me on the table. For the Son of Man goes as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. And they began to question one another which of them it could be who was going to do this. Our Passover lamb. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you for this meal. Thank you for your willingness to eat it. And more than your willingness, thank you for your desire. Bless us, your people, now, thousands of years after this night, as we hear these words, reflect on this scene, and then partake of this meal. Lord, help us to see you. We pray in your name. Amen. Today's sermon application, just in case you get confused as I move along through the text today, is very simple. The sermon application is this, that we, as the people of God, in a few minutes when we partake of this supper, would partake of it well. That we would partake of it meaningfully, that it would nourish our souls, that our faith would be strengthened, that our reflections on Christ would be great as we take of this meal. Now, if you are here today and you're not, for one reason or another, going to be partaking of this supper, when we partake of it in just a a few minutes, then I want you to use this time to reflect, to consider the things about which we're speaking today, to reflect on what God has provided for us in this meal, and to prepare to one day join with us at this table in celebration. For clarity's sake, I'm going to take a look at this passage today, and I'm going to articulate several themes that are in our passage, and I will make note of them as I move along through this passage. And the first theme that I want to direct your attention towards is the convergence. All of the streams of history, all of the streams of biblical history, and certainly all of the life of Jesus is converging in the events that are recorded for us here and in the next chapter or two of Luke. It may not seem like all of human history relates to this upper room, this particular small place in Jerusalem or the events surrounding it, but nevertheless, there it is. All things meet at this place. If you recall the story of the temptation of Jesus, and Luke begins with that story, as do other gospel writers. We read at the end of that story, and we read this in Luke in particular, that the devil, when he had ended every temptation, he departed from him, from Jesus that is, until an opportune time. So he's waiting for the moment. And the moment has arrived. He stopped his temptations then. Verse 3, then Satan entered into Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. This is the time that he's been waiting for. And he lays hold of it, and he seizes it. And Luke is trying in a literary way to focus our attention, to see how all things are converging. So it begins, uh, chapter 22, now the feast of the unleavened bread drew near. Verse 7, then came the day of the unleavened bread. Verse 14, and when the hour came, 
to feel the progress of that. It's drawing near. It's the day. It's the hour. Things are converging. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. Their plans were converging. Satan's plans were converging. And Judas, in the meantime, in verse 6, is looking for that moment. He's looking for the opportunity when he can get Jesus away from the crowds and thus betray him to the leaders. The conflict of kingdoms and the convergence of that conflict That's been a theme for Luke since the very beginning of the gospel. We've seen it played out on almost every single page, every single chapter that we have looked at in this gospel to this point. When we were in chapter 20 of Luke just a few weeks back, we were finally and fully shown the rejection of Jesus Christ by all of the various groups of the Jerusalem leadership. So we saw that systematically working through the variety of groups, and yet there are three groups that have yet to turn on Jesus. So while all of the leadership has turned, there are three groups remaining. One is the group of the twelve. They have yet to turn. The other, or the next, is the Roman leadership, sometimes Jewish, sometimes appointed by Rome, but the, the, the governing authorities have yet to turn on Jesus. And finally, there's one third group that hasn't turned on Jesus, and that is the people. If you've been tracing this now all the way through 20, the people are functioning effectively, if unwittingly, as a hedge of protection around Jesus. It is the enthusiasm of the people for the teaching of Jesus, for the ministry of Jesus, that is keeping the leadership of Jerusalem from doing what they'd really like to do. What they'd really like to do is arrest this guy and stop him from what he's doing now. Put him to death, get him out of the way, but they are afraid of what the people might do in a situation like that. In this chapter, one of those three dominoes, one of those last three groups is going to fall. And the first to fall in this chapter of those last three are the twelve. Now, we're going to see that. We'll, We'll see it most clearly, of course, in Judas and in his betrayal, but in this chapter, there will be no disciple left standing by the end of it. They will all have fallen. They must all reject him. It is a convergence of betrayal that is coming upon Jesus that is afoot here at the end of his life, and of course, Satan is all in. Now, the fact that Satan is engaged in this, the fact that Satan is the one who has entered into Judas, doesn't in any way remove a willful responsibility from Judas in these actions. We see in in all of the ways that are described in that section there from three to six, all of the verbs that are attributed to Judas, his actions in seeking out the betrayal of Jesus. He's an active participant in it, and likewise, Jesus holds him to account when in verse 22, he says of this, woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Yes, 
Satan entered into Judas, but Judas is completely responsible for the actions he takes, and Jesus holds him responsible for them. But what is at the same time crucial for us to see is the fact that this colossal, comprehensive, conspiratorial convergence, which will lead to the crucifixion of Christ, is on a collision course with a rock of greater mass. But it's a rock disguised as a lamb. As, as evidence for another convergence taking place, in addition to this convergence of, of evil, consider these things that are in the passage as well. Jesus gives the disciples specific directions and instructions with regards to the preparation. Go to this place. This is what's going to happen when you get there. That's the person he's going to take you to. Say this to him. Now, what does that sound like to us? Well, it sounds like exactly what happened at the triumphal entry, right? Same type of instructions are given with the exact same intent. Namely, I'm in control of this. I know what's going on here. This is what I want you to do and this is where I want you to go. Now, some scholars, frankly, look at this and say, this is not so much a miracle as it is a prearranged signal system for, for getting this right, a way that Jesus had already prepared in advance. I don't get that sense when I read it. We don't have it specifically called a miracle here, but it seems more like Jesus is understanding exactly what is taking place and telling them that without having planned it and arranged it in advance. But either way, even if it is true that this is something pre-planned, the point is exactly that. These are not events that are happening because bad decisions are taking place. Jesus is not just finding himself in a circumstance where he's isolated from others. Rather, Jesus is planning these events and is in direct control of them. Verse 15, I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Jesus knows what is in front of him. He knows that he is going to suffer. Now, I'm not going to count, but how many times has he explained that to the disciples? It's a lot of times, right? A lot of times he has said to them, I'm going to have to be rejected. I'm going to have to suffer. We know they don't get it. They still don't get it. They won't get it until the end. They won't get it until it's all taking place. In fact, they won't even get it until the resurrection takes place. But he understands it. It's not a mystery to him. He knows exactly what is taking place. And besides that, he knows which seems to us to be unknowable, namely the presence of the scheme, the betrayal scheme that is right in his midst. And he knows it, and he declares it exactly to them to say, even this, even one of you betraying me is no surprise. I know it is going to take place. But why? why? Why is all this going to take place? How does he know all of these things? Well, there's a powerful answer to that in this text. It is found for us at the beginning of verse 22. The powerful answer to that question is, for the Son of Man goes as it has been determined. The Son of Man goes as it has been determined. Determined by whom? Who's setting the stage here? Who's preparing things? Who's actually preparing this Passover? Chief priests? Scribes? 
officers, elders, Pharisees, Sadducees, principal men, Judas, Satan, those are all of the ones that have been mentioned from chapter 20 onward. They're all determining things, right? No, that's, that's not Jesus' point at all. Jesus' point is that the determination have been made in the secret councils of the Trinity before the world started up, before the foundations were set in place. Jesus was the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It was determined long before any of them ever thought of this, ever got frustrated with him, ever took their positions of leadership, ever felt challenged by him. It was determined by God. So we've got a convergence, a convergence of purposes, of plans, and of wills, of gods and of men. Consider now the meal. The convergence takes place representationally in a meal. That's where everything comes together. And this is poetic. It's poetically apropos, for it was a meal. It was a tasting. It was an eating which brought infidelity into the world. It birthed the kingdom of Satan, the reign of Satan, the reign of sin, the reign of death into this world. And now, in another meal, Jesus will allow, effectively, the horns of an unholy trinity to gore him in order to birth a new kingdom in order to give birth to the kingdom of God. Meals throughout Scripture have been a sign and seal of covenants that have been made, covenants between men and men, covenants between God and men. And Jesus chooses the supreme meal, the meal of meals, the Passover, to not only communicate but to seal for them the initiation of a new covenant. Covenant meals have gone throughout history. It is this meal that will now seal the new covenant. Jesus provides a meal of covenant fidelity to the determination of God, to the purposes of God, which will overcome a meal of covenantal infidelity. That's the poetry, that's the symmetry of the Scripture as these things are partaken of. In this meal, through the offering of Jesus, a new covenant, a new bond, a new relationship between God and man is being established. It's being set into place, if you will, that analogy with which I started it, the, the diamond of the gospel is about to be placed in the ring. And the Passover is what's going to hold this new diamond of the gospel, this new pearl of great price. It's getting placed into that setting. It was an empty setting. It looked like an empty setting. It needed something to come into it. And so now, the blood of Jesus 
the inestimable blood of Jesus and its value is going to purchase a stone to be set in that place. Now, the Passover, or the Seder, had several cups, several glasses of wine that were part of the meal. Don't be thrown off here, by the way, this begins in this section. Don't get confused. The first cup, or the first glass that would have been taken in the Passover meal is the cup taken by the Father in which he gives thanks for all which is about to proceed. And so Jesus as well takes the cup, the first cup of wine, and he gives thanks to his Father for all that is set before them. And then he takes the bread and the wine, as we see in this passage, and he reinterprets them. He gives them a new meaning, or if you will, a fulfilled meaning. Remember how at the Passover meal, the various elements of the meal meant something. And so the father would ask questions of the children. Do you know what this part of the meal means? Do you know what these herbs mean? Do you know what this unleavened bread means? Do you know why we're doing this? What this lamb means? In that way, the father was assuring that his children actually had a concept of what was going on when they were partaking of the Passover meal together. Well, now, Jesus, the greater Moses, the greater prophet, takes the elements, and he says, let me tell you what these things now mean. Let me point to you, let me point you to the final, full meaning of these things. Jesus is the Lamb of God, and all of the Passovers that have come before in the history of Israel have pointed to, have waited for this Passover. It is the meal to end all meals. It is the Passover to end all Passovers as we get to this point in history. The body and the blood are not that of a lamb. They are his body and blood. There is no other way, Jesus makes clear. There is no other way to deal with our own conscious, willful, conspiratorial infidelity. He has to bear it. He has to bear the sin, the shame, the guilt, the rebellion, the rejection, and ultimately the betrayal. He and his body with his blood must bear all these things, and if he does, the result will be a new and glorious kingdom birth. It's an awful meal, it's sobering. Who wants to talk about blood and death of the one who's offering this at a meal? But it's an awful meal that will be transformed into a glorious meal as he willingly partakes of it. Jesus, at this hour, takes all of the meals of the past and all of the meals of the future and all of the meals that we will partake of together, and he rolls them together and says, the hope of God for you is to be found in partaking in a meal. So you've got a convergence going on. The convergence comes together in a meal, and then within the meal expressed 
is the desire. The convergence, the meal, the desire. This is a great event, to be sure, all that is taking place here. The eternal purposes of God are being worked out before our various eyes. The plans of the enemies of Jesus have reached a fever pitch. The past, the present, the future, everything hinged on this particular moment. This moment is as big as big gets in the moments of human history. And Jesus, right in the heart of it, says this wonderful line. And if you forget all the other lines of the sermon or if you forget all the other lines of the text today, don't forget this one. I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. You. I wanted to eat it with you. It was my earnest desire. It's what he wanted more than anything else. Now, many Passovers had come and gone. I mean, 15, let's say 1,500. Just pick a round number. 1,500 Passovers had come and gone. Jesus himself had been involved in any number of Passover meals. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover this particular one with you. It's going to be the best Passover ever. And Jesus chose them. He knows what they're going to do. We're going to read about it in the next two weeks. We're going to see this colossal failure. And yet it's with them. Let it sink in. This meal is the sealing of his fate. All of these disciples are going to abandon him within the next few paragraphs. Within the next few hours, they're all going to abandon him. But it's with you, for you. That is amazing love. John, the Gospel of John, quotes Jesus or summarizes Jesus saying, having loved his own He loved them to the end. And that's the same thing that Luke says here with these words. I've earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you. The Passover, this meal for them, is the pouring out of the love of God, of the love of Jesus Christ on these particular ones. And make no mistake, it is the pouring out of the love of Jesus Christ on all who would then believe through his name. The earnest desire of Jesus Christ is for you in this meal. As we partake of it together today, as we come to this table, do you appreciate that? Do you appreciate what Jesus is saying about you, about us in this meal? It's what he wants. More than anything else is for you to partake of him to be in communion with him. This love of Jesus that he shows for us here is not an ephemeral love. It's not a fleeting love. It is not an impetuous love. It's not a crush. It's not an infatuation. It is love grounded in and sealed by the body and blood of Jesus Christ. And it is a love that was set on you, 
from before the foundation of the world. That's the purpose that is being met here. A love that conquers the schemes of Satan and the wicked, and a love that will overcome for the disciples and them for us all of your failures, all of your feeble weaknesses, and all of your sins. The love of God is outpoured to us in a meal, and that is what we partake of when we partake of this meal together. We partake of the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. In the meal, we remember and we anticipate. We remember all of the Passovers that came before, and then the great Passover at which our Lord and Savior offered himself. And we anticipate. We anticipate when this meal is fulfilled in the wedding feast of the Lamb. And we sit down and commune with Jesus face to face and with all the saints at his return. We are in union with Christ as we partake of this meal. And it is through this meal that he then strengthens our communion with him and our communion with one another. This is a family meal. This family meal requires faith, and it requires understanding, and it requires that you've joined the family, that you have become a member of the household of faith, the church of Jesus Christ. If that isn't you, then please consider these things today and take the appropriate steps so that you can join with us at this table, professing faith in Jesus Christ and resting in his love. Children of this church, some of you have not yet come yet to the point where you've professed your faith publicly and will join with us at this table. Watch what we are doing here. Learn from your parents. Hear the words. Get to this table. You want to be at this table. You need to be at this table feasting on Jesus Christ. You need it for his nourishment of your soul. It is not secondary to his purposes. It is at the center of what he is doing. Children, get to this table by faith and by pursuing Jesus and by professing your faith in Jesus Christ. We want to sup with you. We want to enjoy this together with you and be strengthened with you in the love of Christ together around this table. Do not neglect it. Uh, Abby and Will, as you guys partake of this for the first time today, may the Lord give you strength. May you know the love of Christ and be assured of it down deep in your soul, down deep in your belly, of his love for you, of his offering for you. And so there's an invitation here to all who are baptized and professing members of the church of Jesus Christ, members in good standing, not under the discipline of the church. We then want you to come. We want to commune together. We want to feast on Jesus together, anticipating that which is to come with thanksgiving for the death that has brought us life through his resurrection. We invite you to come and partake in the love of God outpoured in Jesus Christ our Lord.